Tonight we're going to finish the book of Joshua as we look at his last days and as we examine what happened to the generation after him. During this, this summer, we've been in the, the book of Joshua as our summer series, so would you turn to Joshua chapter 24 as we conclude the book of Joshua tonight, looking at his last days, but also looking at what happened to the generations that followed him. <clears throat> I want to pray with you before we get too far into the study tonight. Father, I do pray that tonight, as we open your word, that you would speak to us in a clear way, an undeniable way. And I pray that as we look at your word, that you would give us insight from the Holy Spirit, that you would teach us from your holy word. So I pray tonight, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And I pray that in the strong and the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. I never knew my grandparents on either side of my family. I've always felt kind of cheated because of that. I've always felt like I, I, I didn't have the experiences that others had. I did, never got to go to my grandparents' house and spend the night or anything like that. My dad's parents died before I was born. I never met either of them. My mom's parents died not long after I was born. And so I never grew up with grandparents in my life. So I don't know what it's like when I see these pictures of five and six generations together. Uh, you know, some of you perhaps have a picture like that. you got five generations of, of you know, the, the females in the family, five generations, and sometimes maybe even six generations together. Uh, that's an interesting thing, an interesting dynamic to see generation after generation after generation after generation. Many times, at least where we live, those generations have been connected to the church, have been connected to Christ, they're part of God's family, generation after generation after generation. Joshua, when we come to Joshua 24, Joshua is concerned for his family. And Joshua is concerned for the generations that will come after him. Since he was 110 years old, it's more likely, or it's very likely, that he, he probably had five or six generations alive when he was alive. Maybe even seven generations living at the same time. Now, I don't know if you remember what Joshua said in chapter 4. So I want you to go back for a moment and let you see from even the early pages of this book that Joshua had a concern for the generations that come after him. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, of course, is about the crossing of the Jordan River. We've already looked at that. We're not going to reteach that. I just want to read the scripture and we emphasized this when we were looking at this on a Sunday morning. But it says, beginning of verse 4, So Joshua called together the twelve men who, had appointed, who, who he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you should take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. Now watch this. In the future... When your generation, uh, I'm sorry, in the future, when your children ask you what do these stones mean, tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off from before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. In the future, when your children ask you 
What do these mean? Tell them what God has done. Joshua had this concern, even early in the book, he had this concern for the generations that were to come after him. And in fact, if you, in that same chapter, if you go to verse 20, here he talks about your children asking the question. In verse 20, he expands that. And Joshua, verse 20, Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones that they had taken out of the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. My point is simply this, not to, to belabor the point, but he had a great interest. Joshua had a great interest in telling the next generation about what the Lord had done for his people. So when we come to Joshua 24, going back to that, to that chapter now, when we come to Joshua 24, we find a confusing statement made by Joshua. I think we understand the heart of Joshua, why he says what he says. But it's a little bit of a confusing statement when you read it carefully. Verse 15, we read it today, but we're going to read it again. Uh, Joshua 24, verse 15, this is what the leader of God's people said. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, here's the reason I say this is a little confusing. He says at the first part of verse 15, choose for yourselves. This is an individual choice that you need to make. This choice to serve God, this choice to honor God, this choice to live for God, this choice to recognize God as your God, Choose for yourselves. This is an individual choice. But then he says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Which sounds a little bit contradictory, doesn't it? You choose, but as for me, I'll choose for my family. You choose, you make the decision, but as for me, I'm making the decision for my family. At least on the surface, that's the way it appears. So I want to dig into that for just a moment, and then we'll see how this book ends. Uh, what does it mean to, where Joshua said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord? Why did he say, me and my household? What does that mean? I think there's at least three options. I hope you're taking some notes tonight. Uh, maybe there's something you can write in the column of your Bible, but I want to talk to you about this phrase, me and my household. There's at least three options to explain why Joshua said what he said. And, and quite frankly, I don't know that any of these options are wrong. It could be that all of these options are right, which sounds a little strange to say, no, wait a minute, you're saying all three things are possibilities? Yes, all three things I'm going to show you are possibilities, and it may be a little of all of it. It may take all three to understand why he said what he said. So, as for me and my house... Why did he say it that way? First of all, number one, here's the first option. This was a patriarchal culture. A patriarchal culture. In other words, the men held the position of power and influence. The men were leaders of their families and leaders of their clans and leaders of their tribes. It was a patriarchal culture. And Joshua was acting as the agent or as the representative for his family. And when Joshua chose to follow the Lord... When he spoke out, as for me and my household, he was speaking as the patriarch. He was speaking as the leader of his family. And it's important also to remember this. 
the individual members of his family still had to ratify or live out his choice. He could speak for them. He could speak on their behalf. He could declare as the leader of his family, this is what we're going to do because it's patriarchal structure. But they still had to decide if that's the way they'd live their lives. They were not under real obligation to follow what he said. They had to make their own decision. So that's one option. Number two, Joshua was completely committed to the Lord and his expectation is that his family would be as well. And that's why he said that. Let me say that one more time. This is an important point. Joshua was completely committed to the Lord, and his expectation was that his family would be so as well. They would follow his example. I mean, if you think about it, really, this announcement should be no surprise at all. Joshua had a sterling track record, did he not? If you read the book of Joshua, and if you read in Deuteronomy, uh, if you see how the Lord used Joshua, he had spent a lifetime being devoted to God, a lifetime in faithful service to God. What else would you expect Joshua to say than what he said? In fact, if he had said anything other than that, we would have been shocked. If he had said, well, I don't know about serving God, or maybe that you know they're going to have to do, decide for themselves. If he had said anything other than what he said, we would have been shocked. But we're not surprised that he said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Because that's the way he had lived his life. Let me give you an illustration of this. It's no secret what my favorite soft drink is, right? I mean, that, that's not a secret. You know what my favorite soft drink is. And my entire life, my, I mean my entire life, as my favorite soft drink has been Pepsi. So today after church, we went out to eat. My wife and my son Jonathan and his girlfriend Amanda. And so we went out to eat. <clears throat> Lisa got water, as she always does. Amanda ordered water, as she always does. I ordered Pepsi, as I always do, if they have Pepsi. If they have Coke, I order water, by the way. But I, I ordered Pepsi, as I always do. And guess what Jonathan ordered? Pepsi. Now, if he'd said Coke, he'd have been buying his own supper or his own lunch. That's for <laughs> He'd been paying the bill if he'd said Coke. I can promise you that. So, so guess, you can guess easily what Jonathan, the decision that he made or the thing that he ordered was, of course, Pepsi. If you were to, have, if you were to go out with our daughter, Lauren, you'd find out her favorite soft drink is Pepsi. If you'd go out with my oldest daughter, Kelly, you'd find out that her, I don't know what her favorite drink is because she just drinks water, but we're going to say it would be Pepsi too if she knew what was right, Okay. Here's the thing, there's kind of this unspoken expectation that because my entire life, 61 years, my favorite soft drink has been Pepsi, there's kind of this unspoken expectation that my kids will have that as their choice as well. That my kids will make the same choice. There's that unspoken expectation. Joshua was doing that as well, I think, in this situation. He had served the Lord all of his life. And there was this expectation that his children were simply going to do what he did. And I think that really perhaps under, explains why he said, as for me and my household, because that's the way he'd lived his life. And that was the way he'd seen his children live as well. And that brings us to the third point, the third option. And then we're going to get back into the text. Joshua, the third option is this. Joshua was simply speaking on behalf of his family, simply declaring their faith. He, in other words, he wasn't demanding that they do this. He was just declaring what he thought they would do. 
He was speaking for his wife, for his children, for his grandchildren, for his great-grandchildren, and those even beyond, declaring that they would, as a family, serve God. Now, why would he say that? Because remember, by this time, Joshua is 110 years old. His children are grown. He's seen them serve the Lord. He's watched them live lives dedicated to the Lord. And so when he said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, he was not demanding that they do that, but rather he was describing what he had seen in the lives of his adult children. Now, I took some some time to go through that because I want to use that to set up kind of a heavy question. Can I guarantee that my children and my grandchildren will follow in my steps and serve the Lord like I do? That's a heavy question. And of course, the obvious answer is no. None of us can guarantee that our children or our grandchildren will serve the Lord and follow the Lord like we do. Sometimes godly parents will have children and grandchildren who don't serve Christ. That's a heartbreaking thing to see, and especially for the parents. That here is a husband and wife, and they've raised their children in church, and they've raised their children to love the Lord, and they've raised their children to serve the Lord. And, and sometimes that child or those children, just they don't keep living that life once they get out of the home. Or sometimes it's some of the children living that life, and some of the children choosing not to. We can't guarantee. I wish we could, don't you? I wish we could guarantee that our children, once they leave our home, will continue to follow the Lord and serve the Lord. Uh, But we can't guarantee that. All we can do is to provide them with an undeniable example of what it means to choose Christ rather than choose the way of the world. I want you to hear that one more time. I think all we can do is provide our children and our grandchildren an undeniable example of what it means to choose Christ rather than choose the ways of the world. And well, I'm getting to that. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. I don't have a magic formula for you. I wish I did. I don't have a a way to just kind of wave a wand and make it all better because if you're a broken-hearted parent, I, I understand that you have prayed, and you have waited, and you have hoped, and you have struggled. But I want to give you two words of encouragement. First of all, well, let me give you three words of encouragement. First of all, you're not the only parent to ever face this. And I mean that as a positive encouragement. That it's not like you've done something wrong and everybody else did it right. You're not the only parent to ever face this. Many Parents struggle with this same issue. Even in the Bible, they had those same struggles. That not every child and not every generation followed the Lord. You're not the first. You're not the only parent. And I mean that as an encouragement. Number two, second word of encouragement would be this. Don't stop living for Jesus. Just don't stop. It doesn't matter what your children or grandchildren do or don't do. Don't you stop living for Jesus. They may not believe in Jesus right now, but they need to know that you still believe in Jesus. Number three, enjoy. Don't stop praying for them. That's that's the third thing. Third word of encouragement. Don't stop 
praying for them. And here's the reason I say that. If there is anything that the Holy Spirit of God will use to turn the hearts of your child or your children back to Him, hear me, hear me. If there's anything that the Holy Spirit will use to turn the hearts of your child or your children back to Him, it will be the power of your prayers and the power of your example. They may debate your doctrine. They may deny some of the things you believe that they no longer believe. But one thing they cannot deny is the power of your example and the power of your ongoing prayers. So don't stop. Now, that's just kind of a side issue, but it's a very real issue and it's a very hard issue. But now I want us to go back to chapter 24. And I want to read the rest of the story. And I want to show you how all of this ends. Chapter 24, we'll pick up again with verse 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord, our God himself, who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We, too, will serve the Lord because he is our God. Now, you would expect that once they said that, that the next words out of Joshua's mouth would be, Praise the Lord. That's not what he said. In fact, it's not even close to what he said. Joshua said, verse 18, verse 19 rather, Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after He has been good to you. So the people are coming back to Joshua with their response. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said, You're witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we're witnesses, they replied. Now pause there for a moment. Don't read any further. What in the world is going on here? I can tell you what's happening. Joshua is a seasoned minister who has heard false claims before. Joshua realizes that not everybody who says they love the Lord loves the Lord. Not everybody who says they're going to serve the Lord will serve the Lord. Joshua, who has walked with God a long time, he can recognize when people are genuine and when people perhaps are just talking what they think they should say. And so Joshua, there's this back and forth where he's really prodding them, where he's really pushing them, where he's really demanding from them, you're going to have to prove it, that you really do intend to serve the Lord. So let's pick up the story. Verse 21, But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You're witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we're witnesses, they replied. Now then, Joshua said Joshua, 
Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. If you're really sincere, you know all those idols you've been carrying around for all these years? The ones from Mesopotamia, the ones from Egypt, you know all those things you've been secretly holding on to? If you're really serious, here's how you prove it. Throw them away. And the people said to Joshua, verse 24, the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey Him. Then you would expect this is the place where Joshua said, praise the Lord. Nope. Verse 25. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak. Apparently there there was this big oak tree at Shechem that was considered kind of a a holy site. Because if you remember Jacob, I told you about Jacob earlier today, that Jacob dug a hole and buried all these idols from his family that his family had gathered. And it says he buried it under the oak at Shechem. So apparently there was a large oak tree that was considered a, a sacred spot. And so here, here's what we read. On that day, Joshua, verse 25, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone, and he set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. And look what he says in verse 27. It's interesting. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. You know what Joshua said to the people? See this stone we're setting up here? This stone has ears. The stone has ears. It's heard everything you've said. It's heard your declaration that you intend to serve the Lord. It's heard that you've said you intend to obey God. So we're setting up this stone. This stone will be a reminder. This stone will be a memorial. This stone has ears. It will be a witness that you've declared that you're going to obey God. Now, question. Talk to me for a moment. What do you think happened every time the people of Israel, just in casual trips around Israel, as they would go through Shechem, as they looked over at that big oak tree, as they saw that large stone standing under that tree, what do you think happened every time they passed that stone standing at Shechem. I'm not talking about the whole nation. I'm talking about individuals or families. What do you think happened when they passed that stone? What's your opinion? It was a great reminder. A reminder of what they said. What else? Yes, absolutely. Anything else? Could have felt guilty, absolutely. Do you think that perhaps they, in their mind, some of them at least would stand there and just kind of relive that day? Think about that day? Yeah. You know, it wouldn't be a bad idea if we had some stones with ears in our lives. Perhaps we need some visual reminder of the commitments we've made to God. Have a stone that has ears as a testimony, a reminder 
To remind us of the things we've said to God. To remind us of the promises we've made to God. To remind us of the ways we decided we would walk with God. Sometimes we need stones with ears. To keep us on track. Now, let's pick up the story. Verse 28. We're about to to end the book of Joshua. But then I want to flip over to one other page. And then we'll be done. Verse 28. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. After they had set up this stone there in Shechem under the oak tree, Joshua sent everybody home. And it doesn't say he sent each to his own home. It says he sent each to where? His inheritance. What's an inheritance? Something somebody gives you. God gave them that land. And as the author is writing this, he didn't say they went home. He said they went to their inheritance, the place God had provided for them. After these things, verse 29, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaosh. That's the the end of the book of Joshua, except it's talking about some burials, other burials in the promised land. But that's the end of the book of Joshua. But it's not the end of the story. Because if you look in your Bibles, there is a book that follows the book of Joshua. What is the next book? You know that Joshua is mentioned in Judges? Now he's dead, remember? He dies at the end of Joshua. And yet, the writer of Judges mentions Joshua. Isn't it? It's interesting how he is mentioned in the book. Now, let me summarize real quickly the book of Judges for you. The book of Judges tells the story of Israel in the promised land. Watch this. From the death of Joshua to the first king of Israel. So that time frame, from the death of Joshua to the death, or to the, the first king in Israel, the beginning of the monarchy. Now, isn't it interesting, by the way, uh, we don't have time to dig into this, but just an interesting little tidbit. When Moses died, God appointed a leader to take over from Moses, Joshua. When Joshua died, God did not appoint a new leader. They were now settled in the land. Guess who the leader was supposed to be? God. Moses was their leader to lead them out of Egypt. Joshua was their leader to lead them into the promised land. Now they're settled. Now they're in the home. Now they're in their inheritance. Now they don't need a leader anymore because now they have gotten what God wanted to give them. Now they're supposed to live as God, as their Lord, their leader. And that's where the book of Judges comes in because throughout the book we see what I've referred to earlier as the canonization of Israel. And what I mean by that is the people of Canaan, the people, the pagan people who were their neighbors, influenced the people of God over the years. And the people of God became more and more like the people of Canaan and less and less like the people of God. It's the canonization of Israel. This happened over a long period of time and there was this downward spiral, these cycles of disobedience, foreign oppression. They cry out for God's deliverance. God sends a judge to help them. And they're good for a while. And then there's this other cycle of disobedience and foreign oppression and to cry out for God's deliverance. And, and every time that God sent a judge, 
and they turned back to the Lord. Then eventually, when they turned away from the Lord, they got worse, and it was just downward, downward spiral throughout the book of Judges. Now, there's two interesting verses in Judges 2. I want you to read these with me. Judges 2, verse 7 and 8. I'm sorry, just verse 7 and, and then verse 10. Judges 2, verse 7. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. There's him mentioned in the book of Judges. The people, the people of God, the people of Israel, served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. And the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So, watch this. The people of God continued to serve the Lord God throughout the lifetime of Joshua and beyond. How far beyond did they serve the Lord? Throughout the lifetime of the elders, the ones uh, that were appointed as elders in the, in the land. But now go to verse 10. And after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. The whole generation referring to Joshua and all the elders. All right, And after that, genera- that whole generation had gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord or what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Served the bells. I want to pause here for a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why I fear for what might happen in America. I'm not talking anything about politics. I'm talking a, a, a principle, a, a biblical principle. Look at this one more time in verse 10. After that whole generation had gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel, and they served the Baals. They served the other gods of the land. I'm fearful that that very thing is happening in America right now. Look at any study that's done, and it it appears that we are becoming a post-Christian nation. Now, there's some debate if we ever were a Christian nation. I don't want to get into that debate with you. I'm just simply saying it appears that we're, we're becoming less and less like the people of God. In fact, if you look at Europe, I think you'll see a pretty good picture of where America may be heading. I haven't been to Europe, but what I read about in Europe is that there are still lots of churches standing. They're just not churches anymore. They're either empty or they're a museum or they're a restaurant or they're an apartment. And you and I, even here in the Powdersville bubble, as someone recently called it, you and I here in the Powdersville bubble, we know of churches that are no longer standing. Now our apartment complexes, they've torn it down and built a huge condos or something. We know of churches that are sitting empty. I was going to overwhelm you with a lot of facts, but let me just give you a few stats just to whet your appetite. Do you know that the North American Mission Board, uh, Southern Baptist North American Mission Board, we're planting churches throughout the United States. And if you want to know what's happening to America, just look at the cities. Talk about religiously now, their, their commitment to the Lord. For example, in Boston, where we're helping to plant a church in the town of Charlestown, the community of Boston, Charlestown. 
I think there's 21,000 people that live in a one square mile area. That's, that's the size of Charlestown, one square mile. 21,000 people live in that one square mile. And of those 21,000 people who live in that one square mile, 98% of them do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. 2% are considered evangelical. New York City. New York City, of course, one of the largest cities in the world, most metro, one of the most metropolitan cities in the world. People from all over the world, of course, come and live in New York City and work in New York City. It should be no surprise to you that in New York City, uh, they are, according to the stats that I read from NAM, 4% are considered evangelical Christians. 96% of the people who live in New York City, the millions and millions and millions of people who live in New York City, 96% of them are not evangelical Christians. Cleveland. We've helped to plant a church in Cleveland, and one of the reasons is because in the city of Cleveland, the mistake by the lake, as it sometimes is referred to, it's a beautiful city, but it has a bad reputation, and in the city of Cleveland, 8.5% of the people are considered evangelical Christians. 8.5%. In Detroit, Detroit is known in the area with the vanishing church. That's, that's how they're known, the vanishing church. Because church after church is shutting down. Church after church is being transformed into something else. And in Detroit, uh, 10.4% are evangelical Christians, and that number is dropping. Los Angeles would not surprise you that a great city like Los Angeles, with all kinds of people from all over the world, 8.3%, only 8.3% are considered evangelical Christians. Ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to understand we are only one generation away from all-out apostasy in America. What do you mean by that? We are only one generation from living out, one generation away from living out what we read in Joshua, or I'm sorry, in Judges. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. And after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done. It only takes one generation. One generation to fail to pass on to the next generation their faith. And that generation, they grow up not knowing the Lord. That's why I ask you at the very first of this, during our greeting time. How long have you been going to church? And for most of you, all of your life. As you look at the picture in America, that is quickly changing. There are some places we could take you in the cities like Boston uh, where they are three and four generations away from somebody who was involved in church. It's like, I don't go to church, my mom and dad don't go to church, uh, my grandparents never went to church, but my great-grandparents, they used to go to church. And that's happening all over the United States. Ronald Reagan, 1967, delivered one of the most memorable lines, perhaps in his storied career. Ronald Reagan said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The truth of that statement appears downright prophetic in light of what's happening in our nation today, doesn't it? It only takes one generation to forget, one generation to reject, 
one generation to turn a deaf ear to the principles we hold dear and the next generation won't even know about it. Israel's wholesale abandonment of God. Wholesale abandonment of God's Word. Wholesale abandonment of God's principles. Ushered in a great time of trial and persecution. I just have to read this verse one final time. After that whole generation, Joshua's generation. Joshua, the man who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. After that whole generation had gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. If we fail to teach biblical values to our children and our grandchildren, the next generation may not serve the Lord we serve. If we fail to pass on our faith to our children and grandchildren, the next generation, the next generation may not know anything about biblical values. The people of Israel faced punishment from the Lord because they abandoned Him. And I'm afraid that very well could happen in America one day. As this generation handing our faith to the next generation we have to be deliberate that the next generation understands we have to focus on the next generation because it's not just about them oh it is about them and their eternal destiny and, and their relationship with the Lord absolutely it's about them but it's the understanding that if I just focus on my generation the next generation may never hear the gospel. They may never know the Lord. They may never serve the Lord. And so you have, I'll close with this, you, you have in the book of Joshua, Joshua declaring, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you have in Judges this statement. But after he died, there was a generation who grew up who did not know the Lord. And we have to ask ourselves, what happened in that gap? Or maybe a better way to ask it is this. What didn't happen in that gap? Now the only thing that you and I can do is the, as best we can to live out our faith and to pass it on to our children. Live out your faith. Pass it on to your children. Let the next generation in your family know about the Lord. And encourage the next generation in your family to serve the Lord. Because it's not just about them. It's the generation that will come after them that will be impacted as well. Well guys, you've been so good. I appreciate you, your attentiveness. And I just want us to pray for our families right now. Would you join me as we pray? Uh, would you take just a moment and pray for your family members by name? If you have children, would you pray for them by name? Some of them walking with the Lord, perhaps some of them not. Just spend a moment praying for them.
And Father, we just join our hearts together asking You to help us to, as a church family, help us to know how to focus on the next generation so that they too can know the Lord, so that they too will serve the Lord, and so that they then, in turn, can pass on the gospel to their next generation. I pray that in the name of Jesus.